You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. A Chinese security firm calls out the U.S. CIA for Vault 7 campaigns against civil aviation. Meanwhile, the jury's out in the Joshua Schultz Vault 7 case. Incident responders in the U.K. may be re-entering the labor market. U.S. agencies issue a joint warning to adversaries about election interference and joint encouragement to citizens. The Cyberspace Solarium talks about elections. And the Justice Department offers advice on cyber threat intelligence collection. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Tuesday, March 3rd, 2020. Chinese security firm Kihu 360 has outlined an 11-year campaign by the U.S. Central Intelligence Agency to compromise targets in China, particularly in the civil aviation sector. The report, apart from some suggestions that incursions into civil aviation extended beyond China, is mostly warmed over Vault 7 material from WikiLeaks. The report makes much of the case of Joshua Schultz, currently standing trial in the U.S. on federal charges related to the Vault 7 leaks. Kihu 360 has certainly published interesting and useful warnings of cyber risk in the past, but as Forbes points out, this report depends heavily on material published earlier with a heavy dose of speculation and not much in the way of detailed evidence for attribution. So it seems to be Beijing's repost for Washington's recent naming and shaming of Chinese cyber operators. To return to the case of Mr. Schultz, the Washington Post reports that a jury in Manhattan is currently deliberating the verdict on his indictment for illegal gathering of national defense information, unauthorized computer access, theft of government property, and making false statements. The defense's closing arguments portrayed Mr. Schultz as a patriot and a whistleblower, whom an embarrassed agency made the fall guy as it scrambled to undo the damage the Vault 7 leaks had done it. The prosecution argued that the former CIA employee was angry and vindictive, a disgruntled employee who wanted to damage the agency, knew what he was doing, and took steps to cover it up. The jury is out. The Register says Maersk is preparing to cut 150 jobs at its Maidenhead Command and Control Center, This is the crew credited with helping Maersk ride out NotPetya in 2017. So if you're hiring in the UK and looking for people who know a thing or two about incident recovery, consider a visit to Maidenhead. The US government issued a terse warning to foreign adversaries in advance of today's Super Tuesday presidential primaries. Quote, Any effort to undermine our democratic processes will be met with sharp consequences. End quote. The Secretary of State, Attorney General, Secretary of Defense, Acting Secretary of Homeland Security, and the Acting Director of National Intelligence all signed the joint statement, as did the heads of the FBI, U.S. Cyber Command, and NSA, and CISA. 
They also stress the citizens' role in rejecting disinformation, know where and when to vote, know what the issues are, and know what identification will be required at the polls. And they commended state and local election authorities to voters as the best source of reliable information. That joint statement resonated this morning at the cyberspace solarium meeting we attended. The commissioners, especially Senator Angus King, independent of Maine, gave the government's warning and advice about election security a big thumbs up. Senator King compared what was happening with respect to election interference to like cyber jujitsu, a yin, soft-style attack where the opposition uses our strengths, like freedom of speech and democratic processes, against us. The Cyberspace Solarium is a presidential commission tasked with developing, in outline, a U.S. strategy for operations in cyberspace. Its historical model, name-checked in the commission's title, is the original Solarium President Eisenhower convened in 1953 to develop a U.S. strategy for the new and unfamiliar nuclear-armed world. The Solarium produced the New Look Strategy of Nuclear Deterrence and recommended containment as the central U.S. goal during the Cold War, that is, patiently wait for the Soviet Union's problems to cause its decline and fall, and in the meantime, avoid a devastating global hot war. This morning's session in Washington, D.C. was an election-focused preview. We'll know later this month what the Cyberspace Solarium's recommendations proved to be. This morning's session wasn't a full report, but it offered a perspective on election security appropriate to Super Tuesday. Nina Jankowitz of the Wilson Center discussed Estonia's experiences with a comprehensive Russian cyber campaign in 2007. She described ways in which the U.S. might look to other countries' experiences with Russian cyber operations and draw lessons that could be applied to attempts to interfere in U.S. affairs. CISA Director Christopher Krebs came to the session from a briefing about last night's tornadoes in Nashville. He thought it worth pointing out that there were significant commonalities between cyber attacks and natural disasters. Election officials have contingency plans in place for disasters. The job of election officials is to prepare for every possible scenario, and they do it well, he thought, as the Nashville disaster shows. The tornadoes should also remind us that those officials' focus is much broader than cybersecurity, and that CISA functions as an assistant to help augment their capabilities in cybersecurity. Our own chief analyst Rick Howard was in attendance, and he files this report. There's good news and bad news from the Cyberspace Solarium's election preview. First, the good news. The feds and the states have made huge investments in election security, with over $300 million invested since 2016, and election infrastructure has improved across the board. Both the NSA and DHS are working closely together this time around, as opposed to the 2016 elections. And according to Chris Krebs, the director of the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency at DHS, the nation is the most prepared we have ever been for the upcoming 2020 elections. He said that 90% of all state election systems have paper audit trails, including all of the swing states. And finally, in the private sector, Facebook is taking down over a million fake accounts daily. All that is very positive. The bad news is that we still have a lot of work to do. And we, as we like to say around here in the inner sanctum of the cyber wire, this news is less than fully successful. Because of the state's constitutional responsibility for conducting elections, it's difficult for the feds to mandate any improvements. Eight states have moved to all digital systems and they need to come up with a paper audit trail of some kind in time for the 2020 elections. Our focus has been on voting systems, but the political campaigns themselves don't get much help and aren't that interested in what they're offered. 
They use every dollar they have to get their candidate elected. Cybersecurity is not just the second priority, it is the last priority. Panel members were clear that it wouldn't take much for outside influencers to cause distrust in the election process, especially if they focus on the swing states and maybe on as few as 10 counties in those states. The Election Assistance Commission seems broken also. Established through the America Vote Act of 2002, the commission has no cyber expertise, lots of unfilled positions, and little authority. Congress passed a law prohibiting foreigners from supporting elections back in 1971, before there was an internet. So that law needs to be updated to abolish a loophole that allows them to buy ads on social media platforms today. And finally, hacking is not the same thing as influence operations, and we have been able to do very little to limit the impact of these kinds of operations in our election process. The Solarium's official recommendations report comes out next week, and I can hardly wait to read them. That's the CyberWire's chief analyst, Rick Howard. The U.S. Department of Justice has published advice about how to collect intelligence in cyberspace and stay on the right side of U.S. federal law. The department notes that, quote, when properly conducted, such activities can improve organizations' cybersecurity readiness and help prepare them to respond to cybersecurity threats effectively and lawfully, end quote. They boil their advice down to two overarching themes, don't become a perpetrator and don't become a victim. Typically, passively gathering information is perfectly legal. But avoid, they say, accessing any online forum without authorization or surreptitiously intercepting communications on such a forum. Don't assume someone else's identity without their consent. Using a fake online identity by itself isn't usually a violation of federal criminal law, but when your fake identity is someone else's real identity, that becomes a problem. You'll find the whole thing on the Justice Department's website, that's justice.gov. Look for legal considerations when gathering online cyber threat intelligence and purchasing data from illicit sources. Just rolls off the tongue. It's fair to say the role of CISO has become more stressful in the past few years. With greater responsibilities and more accountability to the board of directors, not to mention an ever-increasing menagerie of security tools and services to keep track of. Security firm Nominet recently published new research on CISO stress, and their own Stuart Reed joins us with their findings. Well, this is our uh, second annual uh, report uh, from Nemonet, and uh, what we wanted to do is really look at well-being issues from a cybersecurity standpoint, really looking at the humanistic aspect of cybersecurity, which to many people is, is typically considered really a digital problem. But certainly there's a lot of human aspects that go into uh, a mature cybersecurity policy. Uh, and uh, we wanted to really focus in on some of those professionals, particularly from a CISO perspective, uh, and understand how that uh, may impact them, their lifestyles uh, and their working lives. One of the things that was fairly consistent, I suppose, with the report that we carried out last year um, is that nine out of 10 of those CISOs that we spoke to have uh, experienced some level of stress. I think what's really changed this year quite significantly, actually, uh, is the impact of that stress. So, for example, we spoke to the CISOs in our report last year and about 27, 28% of them felt that their workplace stress was having uh, an impact on their mental health. Uh, this year, when we were asking a similar question, that number is nearly half of everyone we spoke to. So that's um, 
roughly in at uh, 48% now. So there really is a, a number of influences and impacts that perhaps have come in over the last 12 or so months. And so, you know, in this context, it's understandable that CISOs are feeling a lot of pressure. Yeah, it's an interesting insight because I, I can imagine uh, some people saying, well, you know, this is a this is a high-level role. Uh, you're probably well compensated. Of course, there's going to be stress with this job. That's uh, that ha- that that's that's the a, a fact of any C-level position. So, uh, you know, what are you complaining about? You this is what you signed up for. Yeah, and I think that that is one of the reasons that Nominet conducted this research is really to help shine a light and and to ask those thought-provoking questions and and to perhaps challenge some of those things as well. I think what we've we've seen here from from our CISO report, though, is that of the CISOs that we spoke to, the average tenure of a CISO appears to be just over two years. Um, Hmm. And so when you consider the need to understand the legacy infrastructures, the decisions that have been made by the previous incumbent of that role. You then got to build a new strategy, then got to implement it, you then got to test it and evolve it over time. It's a pretty tall order for a new CISO coming into a role uh, for them to leave in, in just over two years. And I think when you compare and contrast that, clearly people, particularly from a tech perspective, perhaps are more transient in their roles anyway. What are the take-homes from the report? What, what sort of advice would you have for organizations who want to do a better job with this? Well, I think there's a couple of aspects here. So I think the first one is that there still needs to be this notion of a uh, more of a, a collective responsibility as far as cybersecurity is concerned. It does still seem that there is a bit more of a solid approach that the CISO is purely responsible for everything that they're doing uh, from a cyber perspective. Um, uh, and the, the spotlight is is on them. And I think that really what we need to work towards is a notion of that collective responsibility or a culture of shared responsibility uh, as far as good cybersecurity or cybersecurity hygiene is concerned. Uh, I think also as far as stress is concerned, it, it's worth noting that you know CISOs are where we focused our report. And clearly there is a huge amount of evidence from that report that CISOs are feeling particularly stressed. Uh, but it's also worth noting that you know, employees more generally uh, may be feeling the impacts of stress. And I think that it's important for employers to recognize um, some of the telltale signs of their employees perhaps feeling a little bit stressed. There's an opportunity for employers to look at what more perhaps they could do from, uh, from a, a, an employment perspective that maybe they're not doing already. That's Stuart Reed from Nominet. Finally, we've long regretted the lack of good animal names for U.S. threat actors. It's a matter of national pride. But some Chinese sources are calling the group behind the alleged CIA Vault 7 material Rattlesnake. And it occurs to us that here in the land of the Pit Viper, Rattlesnake isn't bad. Other Pit Viper names you might use include Copperhead, Diamondback, Sidewinder, and Cottonmouth. Feel free to modify them with appropriate adjectives. Sweetheart Cottonmouth, Clever Diamondback, Outstanding Copperhead, Bodacious Sidewinder. You're welcome. But don't tread on them. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program. 
quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com slash cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash cyber. In the dynamic world of enterprise security, identity architects and IT leaders face a major challenge. Growth by repeated acquisitions multiplies the complexity of everything. Multiple IDPs, MFA providers, policy engines that all need to coexist. This can lead to fragmented user identities and policies that create security vulnerabilities and add access friction. Strata Identity solves this. Now you can decommission unneeded IDPs and consolidate the ones you'd like to keep without rewriting apps or disrupting users, engineers, and app owners. Plus, Strata's modular architecture makes it easy to integrate with any identity provider without manual maintenance and coding. Join the ranks of cybersecurity leaders using identity orchestration, Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your top identity security priorities, and receive a pair of complimentary AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Step into a new era of identity management at strata.io slash cyberwire. And joining me once again is Ben Yellen. He's from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security, also my co-host over on the Caveat podcast. Ben, great to have you back. Good to be with you, Dave. Uh, we have spoken over on Caveat about uh, the big telecommunications companies, your Verizons, your T-Mobiles, your Sprints, your AT&Ts, getting in a bit of hot water selling location data. Turns out that they've uh, attracted the attention of the FCC. Yeah, so the latest development is that the FCC has sent an official legal notice to the major telecommunications companies, AT&T, Sprint, T-Mobile, and Verizon, warning them that they're going to have to pay hundreds of millions of dollars in fines. Hmm. Um, These are what are called notices of liability. Uh, So this in and of itself doesn't compel the companies to hand over a fine. It sort of starts the process. Hmm. Uh, And these companies have the option of appealing and almost certainly will. Hmm. At issue is the fact that these telecommunications companies, by the nature of collecting business records, can very neatly track where we go because wherever we are, our cell phone naturally pings the closest cell phone tower. These companies can track our location. Right. And these telecommunications companies have been selling that information to third parties. Of course, you know, as we've talked about on our podcast and on this podcast, that information is extremely valuable, extremely useful. If you know that I'm in a certain uh, neighborhood every Wednesday afternoon, then I'll start seeing advertisements for a cafe in that neighborhood. Right, right. Um, So obviously, perhaps if I went to a health clinic or uh, some religious organization or something. Yes, you can imagine it being, you know, even more personal. Right. Uh, The tech companies seem to have promised the Federal Communications Commission that they would cease this practice. But... An investigation spearheaded by the head of the FCC and Senator Ron Wyden, who's a prominent 
civil libertarian in the Senate seems to have indicated that they were still engaging in this practice. Hmm. And as a result, they've been sued. Uh, so separate from the potential fines at issue here, they're facing a lawsuit for selling this this data. Uh, so you know, my guess is if there's enough evidence out there that these companies were warned to cease this practice and they were not, then they will be facing pretty hefty fines from the FCC. The FCC has pretty broad enforcement authority. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that, that was what I was going to ask you: is that how does this how does this play out with the FCC? Can the does the FCC have the ability to just say, you know, give us this amount of money and it's this amount of money and then what happens next? Does, does it eventually end up in front of a judge? It could. Uh, it depends on the circumstances. So just like, you know, any sort of administrative procedure and an enforcement action coming from a federal agency, it is subject to judicial review. Courts are generally very deferential to the agencies themselves. Hmm. Um, you know, and you can see that because the FCC issues hundreds of fines. For subjects ranging from indecent material to, you know, stuff like this, violating mm. uh, consumer privacy. So while it certainly would be eligible for judicial review, I don't see any reason based on the evidence we have now um, that we would see judicial review in this case. And for folks who are concerned about uh, civil liberties, this is uh, probably good news. Absolutely. Um, you know, one of the ways we hold companies accountable for bad behavior is through regulatory action. And if the fines that are levied are enough to disincentivize this type of behavior, then it's going to be very valuable for consumers who are concerned about privacy. So we know this is going to be a, a, a very large fine somewhere in the uh, realm of hundreds of millions of dollars. Hmm. And you know, hopefully that will be enough to disincentivize the behavior on the behalf of these telecommunications companies. If, you know, the fines levied against them are more than the potential profit they'd get from selling this location data, then they'll have an incentive to stop selling the location data. Right, right. Uh, so, you know, I, I think that's what the FCC is doing. And the FCC has been criticized over the past several years from members of Congress and from the general public of not being tough enough on these telecommunications providers when it comes to personal data. Hmm. Uh, so this is a major step in the right direction in that regard. Hmm. All right. Well, Ben Yellen, thanks for joining us. Thank you. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for Cyberwire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow.